Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. All right. First question. Yes. Name and occupation. My name is Scott Lewis. I am the CEO and editor-in-chief of The Voice of San Diego, an online, mostly online news investigative service for San Diego, and I'm a journalist. All right, so in your hierarchy of necessities in life, um, from personal to professional, where does communication come into play? I mean, it's my essence, really. It's like the thing that I mostly think about in life. Uh, You know, it's the thing, for instance, I can't watch a show where the plot is driven by miscommunication without like crawling out of my skin. You know what I mean? The communication is everything I have driven, drove. (laughs) It's everything that I have um, really pushed myself to learn the most about and, and to perfect. And so whether it's in learning another language or in telling stories and learning how to tell stories with the perfection of a plot line and, you know, sort of kicker, all of that has really driven everything in my personal life. And, and luckily it's been the focus of my career as well. What other languages do you speak? Spanish. Okay. Just Spanish. Yeah. Okay. Have you perfected it or are you? (laughs) No, no, I can maintain a conversation, uh, several levels deep, but I certainly don't come off as a native speaker speaker. at some point. I can fake it for a while. And then when it starts getting into more interesting subjects, I obviously run out of vocabulary and, and, you know, it's just not that perfect. Do you find faking it works in getting your point across most of the time? Faking it. Well, maybe not necessarily faking it, but more like sort of couple. I understand what you mean. Piecing everything together. I studied in Spain for a year and a half. Uh, The second time I was there, I was there for half a year and then for a year. The second time I was there, I fell in with a a lot of college students from Spain and I adapted their, I adopted their accents, mostly from uh, the group I was with was mostly from Southern Spain. And I found that I was very good at mimicking the way that they spoke and especially some initial phrases and such in conversations. And so I could go out and they loved doing this with me. I could go out to a bar and talk to girls and my complexion, everything I fit in really well. And so I could talk 
and hold a conversation for a while with a girl and and they would assume I was Spanish for, you know, again, the first little while. And then my friends just love saying, you know, this kid's American, not even a Spanish, you know, native speaker. And then, and then it would break down. And yeah, again, usually as I would get to a point where, you know, the topics were so much more intellectual than my vocabulary could handle or something like that. But I really, I did think there was some value in not always trying to translate and manage a conversation, but in in mimicking it, you know. And it was one of my great challenges actually to stop pretending like I understood things to keep the conversation going and to acknowledge that I didn't and and learn from that. So that was one of my great challenges learning because I so enjoyed holding up the facade of being such a good Spanish speaker that that was, a, that was actually a, a maturity thing I had to work through. And you probably at some point reach, a, a, well, I guess you reach a point where you actually have to know what you're talking about. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, that's the fun part of, of, multicultural exchanges and you know experiencing a different world is is to go into somebody's world as far as you can that's very foreign to you and you know that i think is only made possible when you're allow yourself to be vulnerable about what you don't know you know and allow yourself to be willing to be taught and not have to put up a facade that you are you are perfect was there a specific event or moment that led you to journalism? In college, I always thought I would... Well, I, I was very directionless in, in all school, high school and college. And uh, it took a few professors and experiences in college to kind of rattle me a little bit. But I never was a writer and wasn't even that big of a reader in high school but when I came back from my first trip to Spain, I was really fired up um, politically and in other ways. And so I read a letter to the or an op-ed in our school newspaper, and I thought it was terrible. And so I wrote a big long response. And and their response to me, they published it, but there are there are also responses like, "You're so smart. Why don't you come in and and write?" And I just sort of hung out until they gave me a gig writing news for the paper. It was very easy to just kind of walk into that situation. And um, I was just hooked. It was an amazing experience. Challenging one too, to like, you know, go cover the president of the university's speech or something. And, you know, that's not a skill you just know. (laughs) So I uh, started doing it and got more and more sucked into it. I still always assumed that I would go to law school or I would go to grad school of some kind, even though I'd never prepared myself, uh, you know, grades-wise to, to succeed in that path. But I just never pictured journalism as the um, career until I kept doing it. And then I was offered a job at uh, this. I had been freelancing for a local alt weekly. And they offered me a full-time job when I uh, got out and I took it and that was it. That was, that got me. Okay. All right. Now you, you mentioned earlier that voice of San Diego is online and all, all kinds of, of, um, I guess, uh, methods to get it out there. Yeah. Do you have a preferred one? 
So, no, I, um, I guess I, the reason I hedge when I'd say it's online is there's, it's, there's obviously podcasts, there's TV, there are, um, other, you know, social media and other tools that we use to engage people. And so I just think of the website as one tool. Obviously I love writing and I love my own writing and I love editing and, and helping other people tell stories, but I really love social media and I've grown to love podcasting too. I think that as a storyteller, I'm just, I am just overwhelmed and excited about how many different tools we have to use to tell stories and to, you know, kind of tell the same story sometimes with five different media, you know? And so I think that I, I just find it to be a really exciting, if not a little bit overwhelming time because you have so many options and you don't know if you're pulling all the right levers, but I, I still think, you know, writing, just writing a simple story is still my preferred, but, but I think that if, if uh, any one of them, if, if you required me to just be on TV or to just be on podcast or to just be on social media, I'd, I'd do that too. That'd be fun. Have you found any of those to be more effective than the others? No, I think uh, they all do something special in their own way. TV, you can tell things visually in a way that you can't uh, in any written word. You know, you can explain things with good sort of documentary graphic style on TV and, and in, a, in a format that is as powerful as it gets as far as getting across a concept. On podcasts, I think that you have an intimate connection with people unlike anything else. I think it's a, the people who listen to our podcast seem to feel like they know us more than any other connection I have with folks. Social media is wonderful. And the connection there is also really strong. And various forms of radio that I do with like sports radio and other you know people I talk to on the radio, that always seems to create a connection that's really powerful too. And then writing though, there's no obviously form that you can explain so many things and take people through such an imaginative process as you know, just a good writing experience. So it's not that anyone's better. I think they just uh, all uh, have attributes that I, I like to play with. I, I want to actually keep going with the writing. Yeah. Actually. I want to dive into a little bit of that. So basically in all my years of writing, you know, I found myself creating an outline um, for what I'm about to write and just spilling my guts, you know, and, and things like that or editing later. That's another option of, of doing it. Do either of those sound familiar to you or do you have a different way you go about this sort of beginning process of writing? Only on my most ambitious projects do I outline them. My process is more about the writing actually helps me think. You know, I don't, uh, I often don't know exactly how a story is going to go until I start writing it. And so I, my process is to do as much research and, and there's a just a moment in my brain where I know like, okay, this is, I've, you know, checked a lot of my boxes. I've checked with people that I wanted to check with. I think I've been fair to the sources and to the targets and the protagonists in the story. And so at this point, I think it's time to start writing. And often as I write, questions will come up or, wow, it'd be great to figure this out so I could put this here and then I'll do some more research or call some more folks. 
And so, no, I've never actually outlined things, but I don't really consider it spilling or stream of consciousness writing at that point. I, I still, there's still something it, that I is, it's all there. It just needs to be articulated. And I find that the hardest part about writing is, is actually well before you start writing. It's just, are you confident in the idea and the insight that you have? And once you cross that threshold, for me, it's, it's very fast. So you don't come at it as, this makes me uncomfortable because I don't know much about it. I want to know about it, so I'm going to write about it. Is, is that a, a, an angle you tend to avoid? No, I wouldn't say that. I find that um, there are topics that I recognize right away if somebody explained would be well-received and would be valuable. And so I then seek it out. And I think I'm in a position now where I just feel so confident about that instinct that I have that it that it's never a question. It always works out. Obviously, some stuff is not as good as other, but I think that it's. I think the hardest part that young writers and other writers have is is trusting that their insight, that whatever they've they think is interesting, is actually interesting. And you know that's not easy. That's that's a very difficult sort of muscle that you have to work is this idea of if you think something's interesting, it will be interesting to others. And you just have to, you have to work on, on that and you have to test it. You know, when you find that something's just not as interesting, I, you know, there's been countless topics I've delved into that just never generated the discussion that I thought they deserved. And it's not, their fault you know it's not the audience's fault but by go but you still have to try and and then test it and and then you come back and and reevaluate whether that was the right pursuit so repetition really will give you that sort of that instinct kind of build up that instinct for you just doing it over and over whether it's comfortable or not yeah it's a it's a confidence like i i think that confidence is not about knowing that you're good <laughs> It's not about knowing that you're valuable. It's about going through it even when you don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like you're still pushing, you're still going to write it, even though you don't have the data that proves that you're valuable or attractive or that your insight is going to work. So when I think of confidence, like when you public speak, for example, I found that you're never going to not be nervous about it. Maybe, you know, Bill Clinton's not nervous about it. But most people, I think, when they get in front of a crowd are going to get nervous about it. The difference is, is that some of them keep going and others let it like really, you know, paralyze them. And that's the same thing with writing. Like you, you're never going to feel perfect and perfectly confident that you are in the perfect position to tell a story, but you do anyway. Would you consider investigative journalism similar or different than publishing um, scientific research? I think it's different in that it is much more loosely 
defined and evaluated and held accountable. I think, and I may not be correct, but I think that scientific and academic, mostly scientific publishing is, you know, peer reviewed in a more systemic way and emerges as accepted in a more systemic way, in a more, you know, uh, formatted situation. And there are, there are steps that it has to go through to, you know, become part of the consensus in a way that investigative journalism doesn't. And, and also investigative journalism, you know, its success, its impact, its influence, its value is really dependent on how much it captures attention too, and how much it, it, um, you know, tells a good story. And so I think that there are, uh, you know, there, there is a, lower bar for storytelling with scientific, you know, publishing, but a higher bar for accountability and, you know, method. And so, so investigative journalism is about explaining why something is the way that it is or finding something out that people didn't want you to find out. And that is not a perfect situation. There's not a perfect machine for doing that. There's not a perfect template for doing that there is a it's a very messy experience and the accountability is often the last step for that accountability is often in the head of the reporter and the and the editor you know there's no like council or vote or academy to sort of you know vet or jury to decide whether you were right or wrong maybe there should be you know but the ultimate accountability with I think with scientific literature is that others test it and, and, you know, then render some sort of verdict about whether it continues to, you know, float to the top of this, of the theories of discussion. And, and so in journalism though, it's still, it still rests on the, on the integrity and the brains of the editor and writer. Where does the public come into play as far as holding the journalist accountable? Well, that's an interesting, I think everybody, everybody in our business has a different way of doing that, of, 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 of incorporating them. The public, I think, demands to be a part of it more than it may have in the past. And so, you know, how that feedback comes in, you know, we've done many corrections based on feedback we got through Twitter, you know, or anger or uh, different critiques that made sense, you know, and that really is the way you hold yourself accountable. You publish a story and you grit your teeth and see how it, you know, you try to anticipate everything people are going to say about it, all the critiques that will come, but you can't anticipate it all. You'll, you'd never publish if you were constantly going through every possible thing that people would say. And so that function of people providing feedback is how you hold yourself accountable. Now, to what level... I found, you know, investigative reporters and editors are some of the most stubborn people on earth. So once they publish something, getting them to reevaluate the assertions they made is is a very high bar. And and I think it it has to be because you recover or you reveal something about a politician or about a business leader and they're not going to like it and they push back, you can't be immediately swayed by their response. You know, you have to like 
you you have to apply the same skepticism and and investigative standards to what they say to you in response as you do when you when you're publishing or you know producing the story and yet you also have to uh, be willing to listen to their point and maybe you miss something. So you, it's a weird brain you have to have. You have to be extremely stubborn and yet flexible when it when it does matter. And so that's why it's a pretty difficult, I think, skill for people to master. I think in scientific research also you're, you're, con- you're constantly testing a theory. Yeah. You know, you're con- always going over it and over it and over it and trying it in different ways. Whereas with journalism, you do the research and you keep, you kind of keep going forward. You may, it seems like you may step back a little bit to just gather more information, but you keep going forward as opposed to going in a circle until you reach that point where you feel like your trajectory can move forward. I think in a way, although the best investigative journalists and editors are ones who aren't determined to prove a certain theory, right? Like they, they in many ways do act like or should act like scientists in that they have a hypothesis that they test and if the if it keeps surviving that test then then it's a it's a it's a, a great story however they have to be strong enough and flexible enough to identify when that hypothesis has, has you know been proven wrong and and that's when the really interesting discussions come aboard about well is there still a story and what is that story and that's a that's just, again, a very difficult uh, skill to master. Do you think it's easier for a scientist or a journalist to evaluate their, after getting feedback? I don't know. I can't speak for the experience of a scientist. I think that they are probably, you know, they're working on a much longer cycle than journalists are, I think. And some of their, obviously, theories that scientists are working on are, you know, sometimes decades in the making. So I think that, you know, changing course or admitting that you're wrong after you know 20 years of research on something probably is a little different than what we deal with but i think it's um you know i i think journalists just live in a world of fluidity and stories that um i i don't i'm not sure i i understand exactly that where scientists are in that so one of the mit professors that we um, interviewed he was once a journalist yeah. and eventually became this cultural anthropologist uh-huh. um, is what he calls himself. And he talked a little bit about the comparisons Who between... Who um, His name was or is um, Ian Condry. Mm. He studies now, he's very big into Japanese anime and culture. Cool. Um, just, he dove into that pretty headlong into that. But, um, you know, he talked about the comparisons between research and journalism um, and even said research could be considered long-form journalism. Sure. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that journalism is a, I mean, nobody has a, you know, strict, perfect, universally held definition of what journalism is. Basically, in my opinion, it's the act of, you know, trying to figure out why things are the way they are and then communicating that. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's the first draft of history. It's, you know, blah, 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 all these cliches about what it is. But really, it's yeah, it is the initial attempt of us to understand where we're at, what's going on, and why. And so, you know, to obvious certain extent, it's it's a more messy, quicker beginning version of of hopefully what is the cycle of of knowledge, which is then you know more intensely 
investigated more and more formally presented discussion after that. I think that the biggest distinction is that journalists compete in a world of entertainment as well. And I know that they hate that discussion. No, we should never be entertainment. But even more so now, we have to compete with so many different inputs that people have throughout their day that we have to be compelling and interesting to stand out in that. And I'm not sure that academics and scientists live in that world right now. And I'm not sure that's good. I, I, I think that they need to probably identify their lack of salience in the culture as, as, a, as a crisis to uh, address rather than just lament all the time. You know, there's so much like, wow, it's short attention span. There's just so much hand-wringing and, and anger and resentment about the new world that we're in. But that's not going to change. You know, people aren't going to put their phones down. They're not going to they're not going to suddenly get better attention spans. So how are we as, you know, people who establish truth and thought going to compete in that world? And, and I, I embrace that challenge and I, I think we should all embrace it. I'm actually glad you brought that up, the, especially the word truth, um, because yeah. that kind of brings me to the next subject. I want to talk more about ethics uh -huh. in, 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 in communicating. So what role then, since you are trying to reach these audiences through all the various different uh, methods, what role does truth play in the voice of San Diego's mission? Well, it's it's everything. I mean, it's the you know the problem is is that like a like a point in in geometry, there's actually no point. You know, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Like there's no, I don't know that we can ever stab perfectly at truth, but we have to try, and so we have to build systems to uh, you know make sure that we're always trying to get there and holding ourselves accountable. So I think that what we've tried to do is be a little more, well, a lot more transparent about our algorithm and how we figure out truth. And that means that we are open about our uh, ways of doing investigative journalism, our ways of funding that investigative journalism, because so much of the suspicion about journalism is, is rooted in that you know, where are you, what's your agenda, and then be open about our agenda. You know, I think one of the major problems that journalists have had is um, this sort of cult of, of objectivity that they've lived under for, for several decades now, which is that this theory that they are merely mirrors reflecting society, you know, dispassionately with actually no, you know, bias, which is, you know, attractive because you, as people would say, they want to listen to somebody who has no stake in the game. They just, that is just coolly analyzing a situation. But I think it's um, naive and, and disingenuous to say that you're objective because I think that you, as a person living in a community with kids and houses and whatever, you are a, you are a person in this in this world and you have biases you are you know journalists will admit even the people who say they're the most objective people on earth will admit that they have a bias against murder and against domestic violence and against racism and against a lot of things that they're not literally not objective about and you know so i think to say like we are objective is is to 
is to also, they say that they are implying under that they're, oh, we're objective after we accept a bunch of facts, after we accept a bunch of values. You know, if they were truly objective, they would, you know, hold he said, she said stories and discussions about whether murder is good or not. They are not. They're not having that. They've accepted that. So what we've tried to do is gather all of the things that we're, you know, that we carry with us to to these discussions. Um, you know, things like we believe housing should be affordable in San Diego and school and quality education should be available to all. And, you know, things like that, that that we're going to carry with us. We also just want to be a little bit more open about where we're coming from on a lot of stories, because I think that authority and at Clay Shirky at NYU is the one that really identified this, that, you know, authority in research and in writing is now going to be derived from your transparency about how you do this and why your algorithm, not from your institution, right? You know, it used to be that if you were just at the New York Times, you could call somebody and say, I'm the New York Times, you know, and, and with it came an authority. It still does. But with it came an authority that, that was just unquestioned, that was just, you know, there. And now I think that authority, while there's still some remaining institutional authority, the authority that we're trying to build is more of an algorithmic authority, like Shirky identified, which is that this is how we do our jobs. This is where we're coming from. This is how we're funded. This is who we are. These are our, this is our agenda. And so take it or leave it. You know, after at that point, hopefully you trust us. And I think that the second thing I would identify that the journalists that are going to survive in this culture right now are not the ones that rely on institutional authority or, or their name, but rely on that and, and just demonstrate not only what they find, but what they're trying to find and what they're trying to do. And that the, the more connections they make with people to prove that they are, or to show them what they're trying to do, their quest that they're going on, the more people will want to know what they find and trust them along the way. And that's literally the only answer I have for what I think is a major crisis in trust of the news organizations, news business, news media, and the culture of truth. And the only way we're going to build that is to build mass audiences of people who deeply trust you because they're a part of your quest. You mentioned authority, you know, yeah. coming off as an authority on, on something. Is that so, so that is necessary to get people to see you as an authority, to be able to communicate a vulnerable authority. I don't think you can say this is the truth and and you know be you know hard ass about it. I think you have to I think you have to be an authentic you know seeker and somebody that they can they can identify as trying to work for you know blank principle, you know truth or you know some sort of principle in 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 local public affairs or whatever, but I think you have to you, you do have to communicate authority, but only after you've identified a vulnerability and a, and a lack of you know knowledge that you are trying to pursue. And I think at that point, your authority is not so much in like, I am you know above other people and, and, and you know lecturing, but I am with you trying to help provide a service that you're, that you respect and support. 
I have a few more questions. You have yeah, time? sure. Okay. okay. Um, so, you know, one of Voice of San Diego's values is, and I, I'm going to quote this, a well-informed, well-educated community ready to participate in civic affairs. Yeah. End quote. So as a journalist, someone who's tasked with communicating this information to these communities, do you feel that there's a moral obligation with the way that you're getting that information out to the people in the community? I don't like the word moral. I think that a lot of what we deal with on a local and national level is has to do with um, uh, lack of knowledge, ignorance. And I don't, I don't mean that as an insult. Like one of the things I take the challenge of ignorance on as a, as an opportunity and a, and a, just a thing we have to deal with. When I look at the community, I find that it's very rare that people know who the mayor is or know who their city council rep is or know how a school board election takes place. You know, what, who votes, what, you know, how's the primary work versus the runoff what the port of San Diego does, what the county of San Diego does. I find these are, there is vast ignorance about how those work. And I don't mean ignorance in like these people aren't trying. There are no systemic academic institutions or pathways to teach people about these things. In order for you to understand how public affairs work in San Diego, you just have to dive in. And that's a huge very high bar for people to go through. Like they have to, you know, as for us as reporters, you go through it because you're a reporter. That's your job. But if it's not your job, if you're not a lobbyist or you're not getting into public affairs or you're not running for politics or political office or you're not a journalist, you are not going to go through that until there's a crisis point in your community. A lot of people go through it when a school is getting closed or when a development is getting built by their house that they don't like or whether there's a, you know some sort of oil spill or something like that. Then they go through this crash course of trying to understand how things work. And so what our basic principle on that is, is that we need to do whatever we can to help prepare people uh, preemptively before the crisis hits so that they can be ready to understand how these systems work so that they can participate in them. You can't participate in the public facing part of the port of san diego unless you know that the port of san diego exists and what it does and when it meets and you know who the commissioners are and what kind of decisions they make about the land that they manage and about the police force that they manage you can't be a part of that discussion until you understand those things and so that's what we mean there is that like let's do everything we can to explain that so we have sort of two parts we investigate and reveal things but then we also explain and help people understand things and so those are two parts of the same coin, I believe. It, those things that we investigate and reveal aren't going to be powerful unless people understand the underlying you know, realities and facts about how those organizations, institutions, and leaders actually function. So it's not a moral thing. It's more of you just want people to be on a good starting base to be able to be informed. It's an assumption that at, at the heart of it is an assumption that I think you could challenge that more people being better informed and participating in community affairs would produce better results. So I believe, personally, I believe that as humans, we are perennially, perennially dissatisfied. Like we can look at all these stats that say there's no, there's not as much war, there's not as much poverty, there's not as much, you know, challenges as humankind has dealt with throughout its, you know, history. 
However, we are still anxious about it. And I think that at that, in, that instinct is good. That makes us better because we continually try to improve things. It gets a little out of hand when we overemphasize how bad things are versus how good they are. But I think that at that heart, there is a drive there. That's, that's the human drive. To, that's what's propelled us through civilization and through technology improvements and all that. And so I want to help facilitate that with, with a more common understanding of truths and facts. And, and I think that with that, you know, we, we have opportunities, we have growth, we have progress. And so that is an assumption, you know, that is a guiding assumption I carry that I think you could challenge. I think you could, you know, argue with me that that's not actually the best way to run things. It's not maybe progress isn't good, all those kinds of things. So a, lot, a large um, portion of this podcast's or series audience is going to be grad students in these very highly detailed um, scientific arenas. Now, the research papers could actually mirror dictionaries. They're so yeah. thick, you know. But in journalism, you, don't, you only have a limited amount of space yeah. or area to put it in there. Um, how do you decide what information or knowledge or facts are important enough to go in to this small amount of space to communicate the ideas you're trying to get across. That that concept is called news sense and it's a it's an art. It's a instinct that editors, you know, um, adapt and evolve over time about what is news and what is not. And the very you know feel and look and approach of a newspaper or a news outlet is defined by how those editors and leaders of that institution make those decisions and how they've evolved that sense, that news sense. And so what we do here is we have those principles about the things we care about, about the environment, about the about local housing, about local education and all those things. So we, first of all, it has to fit into those things. We're not going to cover a kidnapping or whatever, unless it has a broader meaning for some of those areas. And so then we we have to say like, okay, is somebody else covering it? If so, are we going to do it better or different than they are? Um, and then we make other deport. Are we able to explain why it's important? Can the, can the writer explain to me why it's important? And if they can, or if they're they are committed to it, then I go through another process of like, okay, is it a story or is it a message? So the difference is that a story is this, you know, is a is a story about why how something happened, right? It would be a character, it would be a bunch of characters, maybe a villain, a plot line, a challenge, a conflict leading to a climax, leading to a resolution, right? There's a there's a there's a way we've told stories in civilization for thousands of years, and that's a story, right? A message is something that's that is more common in journalism that is the harder part. But if you clarify it, then you, you actually have a successful, you know, story. And so that is, that is something like somebody has embezzled a hundred thousand dollars from a local public agency. That sentence is a message and proving that message can take months or years or a lot of research and the whole story should be about supplementing that and, and proving that message is true. But they have to be able to clarify that message or else I'm not going to let them go forward. And so, 
you know, that is how we we do that is is you have to be able to identify your message. And I think that stories that are successful have one very clear message and prove it. And the ones that aren't successful are ones that slalom through message and story and multiple messages and other things. And then you, you're left not understanding the concept. And so when I think about academic research, I think like, well, there's there needs to be, even if it's a 500 page book, you kind of need a message of that book to be able to, you know, th- that people can can take away from it. And the whole process of proving that message or of establishing it is something that, uh, you know, could be exhilarating and wonderful to go through as a reader and a writer. But I think that um, if you aren't able to identify the messages at least in each chapter, then I think that um, you you lose people. And that's where the Venn diagram of journalism and research probably crosses. And the middle part is like, we have to still communicate clearly why something's important and what we did this for. And so I think that's the process we go through. Does it fit with our areas? Is it important? Are we gonna do it different and add value? And is it a message or a story? It, it almost sounded like you were bordering on the scientific method of, of, of um, you know, you've got your theory or your message or question, and you've got your research, and then you've got your results. Yeah. You know, it almost sounds like you were heading that way with journalism, but there's a difference in um, that. It's just that story. Yeah. You know, like with the scientific paper, you're not really telling a story. I think that scientists have. Look, I, I don't want to put myself in their position. I don't know what kind of challenges they deal with. But I think that it is a luxury to be able to stop at the point of proof and results and not have to continue through in audience engagement. And I think that, um, I think that that's a luxury that, that exists in the academic world that, that they should both appreciate and maybe challenge because I don't know how long that's going to last, you know, to rely on the rest of society to prove and explain why your stuff is important, I think is dangerous because I think that we are entering a period of, of post-truth discussion where there's just because of the institution you're part of is not going to be enough to establish, you know, your authority and value in society. And so leaving the marketing and engagement and promotion of your work to a third party or a PR person or whatever is very dangerous for anybody, whether they're a journalist or not. I mean, journalists deal with this all the time. One of the frustrating things I have is even young journalists are often reluctant to promote their own work and to be proud of it and to, and to share it and widely try to promote themselves on, you know, TV or whatever. And I like, if I have to tell them, if you don't do that, nobody will, and you're going to lose. Mm. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm actually going to do something that you do with okay. your with the people you interview. I'm going to play an audio clip for you, but I want to kind of set it up sure. first. So about five years back, um, there was an NPR journalist named Brooke Gladstone. She sure. wrote a book called The Influencing Machine. You know her? She's the on the media. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I so, met her before. Yeah. You have? Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So basically, she seems great I've, voice. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I've watched, <laughs> I love it. I've watched some interviews with her. She's really great. Um, now, in this book, um, The Influencing Machine, uh-huh. um, I don't know if you've read that. No. No, okay. It basically posits that um, the media is a reflection of society for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in an interview with um, KPBS, she was asked if there was an answer to one of her questions in the book, which was um, why there's so much crap in the media. Um, so I want to actually play um, her reply to that. Sure. Part of it has to do with the fact that our culture is the way it is. Part of it has to do with the fact that we are wired to like narratives, to like conflict, to like visuals, where we have a, an almost genetic predisposition to be interested in celebrities that we can project mm-hmm. upon. And all of this triviality is kind of baked into the business, just like it's baked into us, and it's a kind of a vicious circle. And I don't absolve the media of blame for being trivial, of being of rushing to judgment, of, of being full of garbage, but I also know that at the very moment when the media are just rife with crap, it's also full of some of the best reporting we've ever seen across the board. And that in every phase of American journalism, we have come to what a lot of people think is the brink of apocalypse. The society is coming apart. Mm-hmm. And at every phase, we've pulled away from that brink, if in fact we were ever there at all. There's been brilliant reporting and dreadful reporting at every single phase of our culture throughout the invention of journalism, in fact, since the invention of the written word. All right. So just as researchers need to communicate um, their work in order to get funding, you need to be able to sell what you're doing in order to both continue that journalistic process um, and also make a living. So where then is the line drawn between entertainment and that commitment towards reporting that truth that we talked about earlier? Well, I talked about it a little bit, but to go a little bit further on that point, I I am tired and so tired of the hand-wringing about the debasement of our discussion, the, oh, you know, how banal is this and how you know, stop being so, you know, clickbaity and blah, blah, blah. Like there is just a fundamental frustration and 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 it's it's couched in nostalgia as though there was a golden period of of truth and journalism and formality and everything was great and now we've descended through this cultural pit of of uh, idiocy and. I I'm tired of that because in, in baked into it is this idea that we could somehow like go back or that we, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it frees the people who make the complaints from the responsibility of dealing with it. They're just like, well, we, you know, nostalgia is, is really toxic in that it, 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 it poisons the discussion about what to do. You know, it just, it's like, well, we can't do anything because everything's so, you know, terrible and banal and not good. And so what I think has to be done is we have to, we, we have to recognize that the, the marketplace for ideas and writing and research has been completely, completely democratized. There is now one voice per one person. You can you can now make your case as an individual 
You don't have to have access to the printing press. You don't have to have access to the newsroom. You are now, you have all the tools that every journalist has. And so in that world, we have to compete. We have to thrive. And so we have to recognize that, that you can be as snobby as you want about entertainment, but you now compete with other people who are willing to do different things to be more entertaining or to be more engaging. And so you can't just lament that all the time. You can't just, you know, be upset that that's what's happened all the time. You can be upset about it, but stop being so paralyzed by it. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to accept that that's the world that we're in now. And so what are we going to do? Like, what what are we going to create that is as attractive as engaging but but has the standards and the ethics and the integrity and the transparency built into it that we need in order to keep that cohesive discussion going because democracy simply doesn't run on we can't run when there's disparate facts out there when there's disparate interpretations disparate realities the whole point of self-government is that we can all get together on certain shared principles and ideas and knowledge to make better decisions. And so we have to embrace that and we cannot just stop at nostalgic uh, concern about it. So I want to talk um, really quick. You mentioned bias earlier. So um, how does that, how do you, is bias a good thing in journalism? Or is it a bad thing? Or even in communication, is bias a good thing? I mean, it's kind of like saying, is are humans a good thing or a bad thing? You know, bias, I don't quite understand the obsession with it. What I think it is, is a suspicion. At the heart of it, the people that are concerned about bias are concerned that they are being told something in order to think something and not being told actually that that's what's happening. Do you know what I mean? That that they that what they are trying to identify is something hidden that is being that they're almost being poisoned with as opposed to uh something transparent that is more you know acceptable. That they they want to be able to make up their own minds. They don't want to be led in, you know, naively through a path where they find out they were misled. And so, but, but bias, but we all are invested in our communities. You know, we are all, we all have homes, we have concerns, we have kids in schools, we have kids that might go to war, we have all kinds of, you know, things that make us biased as humans. And I think that we need to, in order to address the concerns about bias, be more explicit about what we think it is versus what, you know, is the concern. When people, I have so many people come up to me and say that, you know, the reason they love what we do is that we're not biased or that we're, you know, it's nice to have, it's refreshing to have, you know, somebody who's not biased cover these things. And I always, you know, laugh I don't always challenge them because I, I've never claimed that we're not biased ever. We are biased. We have a stake in this community. We're trying and we're trying to be as explicit about what that is as possible. 
And I think that what I have learned that they actually, in many cases, mean by that is that they feel like with our work, they have learned things genuinely and authentically, not been, again, sort of Pied Piper led somewhere, you know, where they weren't where they weren't aware of where they were going. And I think that that's the that's the concern we have to address and be, you know, I think that you can inoculate yourself from the concerns about bias by being as open and obvious about what you're trying to do as possible because then they they can go along with you on the journey or not, you know. That's the thing we have to aim for. And it goes back to you saying that, you know, it's it, it's almost un- impossible to be objective. It is. I mean, the moment you decide to do a story, you have made a subjective decision. You have said that this story is more worth something else to cover. If a truly objective, you know, coverage thing would be a, just a, a thousands and thousands of pages of data reflected back to the community every day about what's going on and no, you know, no filter of what's important or not. You literally lose all objectivity the moment you decide to cover something. You've you've made a subjective decision. Now look, I think you can be still objective or not partisan about particular solutions or discussions going on. And we strive for that. You know, I think that you don't have to take a side on everything. In fact, I don't. We don't take a side on on the vast majority of things we cover. What we do is is take a side on whether something's a problem or not. You know, if a school's failing, I'm not going to host a discussion about whether failing schools are good or not. You know, like we're going to. But but what we, what they do to fix them is not something we're necessarily going to take a side on. So I think that. It's uh, it's you can still be, um, I don't know if objective is the right word, but you can still be fair and and balanced about solutions, as opposed to uh, being just completely, you know, as Jay Rosen calls it, completely embracing a view from nowhere. Everybody has a view from somewhere, and it's colored by their experiences, their background. That's why diversity in newsrooms is so important. It's not because you know you want to you want racial justice in the world. It's because people from other backgrounds have sometimes much more valuable perspectives on things that you might cover than you do because they come from different places. And so I think that we uh, have to recognize that we're all human. Do, do you think someone's background when it comes to at least data or scientific research, do you think someone's background can bias can create a bias for them as far as their understanding of something goes or their dissemination of that information? Well, of course. I think that, you know, it, it. everything that makes us who we are is going to make us part of, make it, you know, color our decisions for how we present things. I think that, I think we just have to be a, as mu- as a conscious of it as possible so that we can accommodate for it and and use it to our advantage too you know there there are things that people see because of their background that make them more valuable as contributors to this marketplace of ideas and so they need to consciously and with vulnerability embrace it okay 
last question. Yeah. I'll let you get back to your journalistic ways. Do you have any tips or lessons um, that you've learned about communication for grad students or any listeners? People are always more interesting when they talk to their friends and family about what they do than when they actually produce it. You know, there is a, they need to step back and, and be able to just explain things and why they care about them in a way that they would to when they meet their friends at the bar. Uh, and I think that there is, there is a value in practicing that. And so I think that anybody struggling with writing needs to identify what would make them go off about it at a party, you know, maybe with a few drinks even that like, that would free them up to sort of just talk why, why that, what part of that can be captured as they write. Um, I think that obviously there are very compelling writers out there and find the people who communicate the way that you think should be done, you know, the way that communication should work and just dive into it. You know, I remember listening to an interview with Judd Apatow, the director and comedian, and he, he described how he used to transcribe Saturday Night Live episodes because he just wanted to understand exactly what was happening, you know, because it was so brilliant in his mind. And I think that there's something in that of like identifying what you think somebody's doing really well and just, just immersing yourself in it. Because if you're ever stuck, you can turn to it and say like, just, just experience it for a second and then imply, apply what you are trying to do to the same sort of approach. I heard you speak at, um, you talked about love at this, this um, creative yeah. mornings thing. <clears throat> Do you find it's harder to communicate vocally in front of an audience than it is to, to communicate in writing? It's different, but no, it's, uh, it's not harder for me. No, it's, it's, I enjoy it a lot, making people laugh and, telling stories and engaging them. That's something I enjoy quite a bit. And so uh, I think that people, when you publicly speak, you know you have done a good job when people leave feeling like they understand something better, when, they, when you've taught them something. And I think that people who don't successfully do that, I think you can look at the political campaigns we saw in 2016 that there's you know, three major candidates, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and Hillary Clinton. You know, obviously there's a bunch more, but let's just take those three. I think that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, when they spoke, helped people understand their world in a way that they could fathom and replicate, and they could leave there with messages, you know, those clear messages. Now, I, I don't like the way that they did that. <laughs> you know, I don't like the realities that they laid out in some ways. In, in, but I, and I think that, you know, socialism on the left, for example, has a way of explaining the world that makes a lot of sense and has for centuries or a couple centuries now. And I think that it is a very powerful theory about why things are the way they are. So when you leave a speech where somebody's doing it well, then they can identify who the villains are. They can identify who, you know, what the challenges are and they can identify who the victims are and they feel better about their understanding of the world. And I think the same thing happens with Donald Trump. Like you can, 
you leave a Donald Trump speech and feel like you understand the world better about who the bad guys are, who the good guys are, who the victims are, what you should do about it. And I think when you left a Hillary Clinton speech, though, I don't think, I think that the problems she laid out, she didn't explain them as much as she emphasized just how big and gnarly they were. And it was probably a more accurate view of the world than either of them. But it's so overwhelming and scary when you leave those. It's just, it's, you could only make incremental progress on these big, gigantic, overwhelming problems. It all sounded monotone. Like when I listen to Obama speak, you know, he's got inflection. He's, you know, he's yeah. fast. He, he speaks fast sometimes. He speaks slow to emphasize points. Same with Bernie Sanders and even with Trump. But like you were saying, Hillary Clinton is just, it's, She's just talking. Well, and more than that, I think it, it's, it's a recitation of facts and ideas, which as sentences are, could be well-written, wonderful sentences, but, they were, but they, are just, they were just constant recitations. I think you know, Ted Cruz would do this too when Ted Cruz spoke. I never forget that the, um, the Nevada caucuses after Nevada, and I watched Donald Trump speak, and then I watched Ted Cruz speak. And, I, and at that point, I was like, Don, Donald Trump's going to win this whole thing. Be, not, I didn't know he was going to win the final election, but, it, but this nomination process, because he was just into it, and he was talking from the heart, and he was explaining the world. And Cruz was just going fact by fact by fact by, by you know, principle by fact. You know, it was just this list. And I, whenever you find yourself listing things, I think you're losing. When you find yourself explaining something, then you're winning. It, and, but emotion comes into play. I mean, there's... <clears throat> yeah, you have to care about it. Yeah, but, but can you do that with fact too? Sure. Sure. I think that facts ostensibly, if you're in this sphere, are what are guiding your passion. And so when you can identify the string of facts that make you feel the way you do and then try to communicate that, that to people who are listening to you, I think you've, you've struck the chord. You've hit what you want to hit. But when you find yourself just reciting things and not entirely knowing where that fits within their emotional storytelling, then you're lost. You're drifting. And I think so many speeches we watch, uh, you know, I'm actually grateful that church was so boring when I was a kid, that there were so many recitations of facts and of, you know, principles that it, you know, I think it facilitated my quick, you know, evolution into an atheist because I, it just never captured me. It never helped me understand the world. And, and, you know, I'm glad that I didn't have to go through the process that I might have had to, had it been more compelling, you know, had it been more explanatory, more passionate. And so, you know, I think that in any, in any situation, a lecturer or a church or a you know, if you're, if you're sitting there just rambling through facts that you might find interesting in some deep part of your, your soul, but you don't actually communicate why they're interesting, you've lost. All right. Very interesting. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Urich. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Brad Comics Live, Brad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book Series are part of a professional development initiative called Brad X. 
GradX is made possible by GradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about GradX as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.